great, great singing, great worship as our uh, Cactus Campus and our Northridge Campus and then our chapel join us and as well as all of you online, won't you bow with me and let's pray for our time in the word. God, it feels good to be together as a congregation here and at our other campuses as well as those of us online to lift our voices to you, to surrender our very hearts and minds to you in preparation now, Lord, for our time in the Bible. God, as you know, we're in a, a short series here in one chapter out of John 18, looking at how the Son of God even had relationships that fell apart toward the end and how we can respond like he did as we pattern our lives after Jesus when it comes to uh, following him today and even dealing with relationships around us. So God, as I pray so often, give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which Jesus so clearly said to us. And Lord, our commitment is that once we understand what truth is, we'll be to courageously live it out and apply it in our daily lives. So God, speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. So when I was in eighth grade, I tried out for the basketball team. I was four foot 10 and I weighed 85 pounds and I was judged by the coach and found wanting and that was the end of my basketball career. Then in ninth grade, I tried out for the football team. I was still four foot 10 and weighed 85 pounds, but in my hometown, you had to try out for basketball and baseball and football. And once again, I was judged by the coach and found wanting, and that was the end of my football career. And eventually I discovered that though small in stature, I could run fast. And so I found my sports in cross country and track. However, those two initial experiences with basketball and football made me realize something that you and I have learned in life. And that is that it's no fun to be judged by your own and found wanting. It's no fun. And with that truth in tow, as a little guy in my life, it's only gotten more difficult as I've gone along. I went on dates in high school and college where I was found wanting uh, as I was judged. I once tried out for a choir when I was in college and I was judged and found wanting in a church choir of all places. It was a phenomenal story. I was a <clears throat> brand new Christian, and I was in this small little church uh, in my college town. And, you know, small churches are hard up to find anybody to do anything. And so they announced that they needed people for the choir. And so my roommate, Dwayne, and I decided that we'd go try out for the choir. There was only 10 people in the choir. I figured this was a shoe-in. They needed help. And some of you know how choir tryouts go. They put you first as a group, so the 10 of us were there, or maybe 10 or 12 of us, and we started to sing, and you gotta love choir directors. There are persnickety guys and gals, and, and, and we're singing, and he, he all of a sudden goes, stop, 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 stop. He goes, something's not right. We all knew where this was going, and, and, and then we started to sing again, and he goes, stop, 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 stop. And he points to me and Dwayne, and he goes, you two, sing. And we started to sing, and, and I swear, dogs started howling outside as we were singing. And, uh, and he looked at us, and he tried to be kind. He, he, he looked at us, and I can remember his fingers going like this. He says, it's, it's close, but you're not quite there. And then he went like this, and we were out. <laughs> I, I couldn't even make it in a church choir when I was judged and found wanting. It's no fun to be judged by your own and found wanting. And though the stories I tell you about basketball and football and choir are funny, and they are, 
I could tell you literally hundreds of stories, and I mean hundreds of stories, since that time where as a, as a pastor, I've been judged by fellow church members over the years and found wanting. And I know that because they make comments to me, they send me emails, they write letters, whether it has to do with something I might say from the pulpit or a decision that I might make in, in leadership, and they will judge me, they will find me wanting, and they will leave the church, or worse, they will stay and continue to judge me week after week, year after year in my life. Somebody once said, the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. And I know that's harsh, but there's a kernel of truth in that. We all know that to be true. And the reason that I tell you these stories is not to focus on me, but to simply get you in touch with the fact that my guess is if you and I were having a cup of coffee, you could tell me similar stories from your life. I think it's universal in a fallen world that we all at times, maybe you're going through it right now, have been judged by those in our circle that are close to us to be found wanting. And the point is it hurts. Maybe it's in your marriage or at work or with a dear friend or a family member or even here in church. Almost all of us have experienced this, sometimes in small ways, like eighth grade basketball, who cares? But then sometimes in big ways, like in your marriage or with a key friendship. It's no fun to be judged by your own and found wanting. In fact, let's say it even stronger. Not only is it not fun, but sometimes more often than we would like, it's a relationship killer if there ever was one. Over the years, as I thought about this idea of just this harsh judgment that we throw on each other, I thought, you know, you couldn't liken it to friendly fire, right? Like in the military, where you're shot by your own. But at least in the military, it's unintentional when it's friendly fire. Many times when you and I are judged by our own, they know exactly what they're doing. And bullets fly in the form of unfair judgment and they wound, they even kill as the relationship suffers. And so as we continue our series here at SBC called When Relationships Fall Apart, we come to this idea today of being judged by your own. We're taking a look at Jesus' final couple of days before his crucifixion as recorded in John chapter 18. And we're noting that even the Son of God, the perfect incarnate Son of God, had some key relationships that struggled and even fell apart. And as we get to the scene today where Jesus, having already been betrayed by Judas, that relationship fell apart, and denied by Peter, that relationship fell apart, though it will be restored, we're taking a, a look here now as Jesus is dragged in front of his fellow Jewish leaders, and here's how John records what happens next. Let's dive into this scene. It says, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Now, before we get to the judgment part here, which is obviously a huge part of it, I want you to first park in front of who these major players are here because they're unknown to a lot of people who, don't, who aren't familiar with the Bible. So notice first you have Annas, 
who was the reigning high priest, our history books tell us this, from about 6 AD until 15 AD. And then you have Caiaphas mentioned here, who was the current high priest in Jesus's day. He reigned from about 18 to 36 AD, and it's now 33 AD when all of this is happening. So you have two of the highest ranking Jewish religious leaders mentioned here, Annas and Caiaphas. And Annas is called the high priest here, but technically Caiaphas is the high priest. The reason that John does that is kind of like how we do today. I'm the senior pastor, but we have a guy who actually preceded me, Daryl, who's our pastor at large. And Daryl still has a lot of influence in our church and in our community, and we honor him that way. That's what's happening back then. Caiaphas was, quote, the head guy, but Annas was the guy before Caiaphas, and he's also seen as a high priest, at least in influence and power. And they bring Jesus before both of these guys. John records the scene here with Annas, and then Matthew and Luke will record the scene with Caiaphas to pass judgment about him. And before we move on, what you need to see, this is really important, it's our whole theme today, is that these were Jesus' people. Jesus was Jewish, most of us know that. He was a rabbi, he was a teacher, and these were his fellow Jewish leaders that they were bringing him before. For our purposes today, these were his fellow church members, his fellow believers in God. These are the people he taught alongside in the temple. And Matthew and Luke tell us even more. They say that, that, that when Jesus would appear before Caiaphas, there were the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, what is known as the Sanhedrin. All the Jewish leaders were there. These were his own. And they were there to pass judgment on Jesus concerning one thing and one thing only. It was not complicated. And that was Jesus' claim to be the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. God come in the flesh to save his people, even save the world from their sins. And Matthew and Luke cut through all the red tape in, in telling us what happened when Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin directly asked Jesus, are you the son of God? To which Luke tells us, Jesus looked at them and said, yes, I am. To which Caiaphas then says, he has blasphemed, meaning you've, you've made yourself to be God when you're not. And all of them in unison say he deserves death. And off Jesus goes to face Pilate, the Roman governor that Rustin's gonna talk about with us next week. But as we park in front of this scene here today, when Jesus is before Annas and then Caiaphas, what you don't wanna miss is that he's being judged by his own and he's found wanting. And it's certainly an unfair judgment because you and I know that he's the son of God, he's the Messiah who came to redeem the world and lead us to God, but they don't see it. And they pass judgment on him and they find him wanting. And what you need to see folks, because again, we, we're tempted to say, well, he's Jesus, he can take it. He was Jesus, but he was also 100% human in addition to being 100% God, and you have to believe that it hurts. You have to believe that it cuts deeply, that his own, his people, his fellow religious leaders would judge him so wrongly, unfairly, and harshly. And we know for a fact that it killed the relationship. The relationship was already strained with the Jewish leaders up to that point, but if there was a nail in the coffin, this was it. The Son of God 
had relationships fall apart due to, to being judged by his own and found wanting. And the obvious question becomes for you and me today is what do we do then when we're judged by our own? How do we respond when we are hit by friendly fire, which as we've already seen is really not so friendly as it comes intentionally and unfairly? And the cool thing about this scene we're looking at here today is that Jesus is gonna show us the way. There are no less than three ways that the Son of God responds here in John 18 to the unfair judgment coming his way that show us how we can and should respond as well. And I'm just gonna warn you right now, Cactus, Northridge Chapel, those of you online, all of us here, you're gonna love this stuff. And it's not mine, I'm stealing it right from the text here, you'll see that as we go along. But it's really powerful and potent stuff that Jesus shows us that we can apply to our own lives when we feel unfairly judged by those around us in our circle. So here's the first thing, Jesus shows us that we need to allow integrity to be our security, or let's personalize it. Jesus is gonna say to you, allow integrity to be your security. So look at what happens next with Jesus and Annas, the high priest at large here, and the first thing that Jesus does when he is judged so unfairly. It says the high priest, Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Why, why not question those who have heard what I spoke to them? They know what I said. Now, I want you to focus here. I put it there in yellow so that you would see it on those twin phrases here that are getting at the same thing where Jesus' primary response is to say that I've spoken openly, that I spoke nothing in secret. So in being judged unfairly by those who are his own and found wanting, his response is to say, I've spoken openly, nothing in secret. What's he getting at there? That word openly here is a very powerful word in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in. It's the Greek word parousia, parousia, and it literally means to speak plainly, publicly, in an open, honest fashion. The Greeks of Jesus' days, you can imagine, attached morality to this word. They used it to refer to a person who was open and honest and free, an open book, as you and I would say today when it came to their lives. To put it in today's terms, it's WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. Parousia, that's what this word is after. Nothing held in secret. And to add even more understanding and texture to this, the Greek philosophers would use this word, and I quote, as a presumption of democracy. Our culture is not the first to try to have democracy. The Greeks were after this as well. And they use this word to describe how in a democracy, everybody gets a say. And everybody gets to give their voice, their opinion. And it was important for them in their vision for society and politics, this idea of parousia. And then the New Testament writers would jump all over this word to now describe how Christians need to function. So I love how 2 Corinthians 3.12 says it in the old King James Version. Look up here. It says, seeing then that we have such great hope in Jesus, 
We use great plainness, parousia, of speech. Plainness of speech. In other words, we tell it like it is. Simple and straightforward. We are honest with the truth of God and we're honest with the truth of our own lives as well. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing here, gang. He's responding to being judged by his own as saying, I've spoken openly, even honestly and forthrightly about who I am and what I came to do. You know I'm the Messiah, nothing in secret. And what we're bumping up against here right now, folks, is the very definition and idea between what you and I today call integrity. If you were to look up the word integrity in our modern day dictionary, you would find a definition very close to this Greek idea of parousia. Integrity is defined by Webster's dictionary as this, it's the quality or state of being complete or undivided. The quality or state of being complete or undivided. Integrity is simply a soundness of character, a wholeness of character. It's simply when what people see on the outside matches what really is on the inside. So all of your, your foibles, all of your warts and pimples, all of your mistakes, all of your fallenness is just out there. And integrity says, I am who I am. What you see is what you get. It's very akin to this idea of parousia. I've spoken openly, as Jesus says, nothing in secret. And the point is, I hope you're catching it, is that this absolute integrity, this parousia, was Jesus' security when he was being judged by his own, even judged so unfairly and unkindly. He responded to their judgment with a knowledge and understanding that his integrity was intact. And I will submit to you that there's a lesson for you and I in this today. Because you see, when you and I are judged by our own so strongly and unfairly at times, we too can and should respond like Jesus. We can allow our integrity to also be our security. And here's what's really cool about this. You're gonna like this. When you think about it deeply, as I have, we can actually do something with this that Jesus couldn't do. You're saying like what? Well, Jesus was the perfect, never sinning, never erring son of God, amen? I mean, that's what makes Jesus so special. He was God come in the flesh. So Jesus' integrity is hard to argue with at all. Like when he says to, you know, the Pharisees, I mean, I'm sorry, to, to Caiaphas and Annas here, you know, that, hey, you know, I spoke openly, I am the Messiah, everybody knows it. You know, you can believe him or not believe him, but it's hard to doubt the openness, the integrity of that. You and I have a different struggle here. You, you and I live imperfect lives. You and I have lots of warts and pimples. You and I are a work in progress, even as followers of Jesus. So when we claim integrity, we know that we still fall short. We know that we still struggle. Now watch this. We know that even sometimes the most harshest judgment that has come upon you that is seemingly so unfair probably has a kernel of truth to it. <laughs> so even if they're 90% wrong, they're 10% right. Even if they're being grossly unfair about what they're seeing in your life, it's still in your life when you're honest about it. And the beautiful thing about his integrity is that you still open yourself up and say, hey, I got nothing to hide. I think you're being grossly unfair and judgmental, but there is a truth to what you're saying right now. Have at it. 
because I'm comfortable with who I am. That's what integrity does. It gives you, it gives you security even in your fallenness. It was about 18 years ago, I was in my, my second stint as a senior pastor, pastoring my home church just outside of Cleveland in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. I pastored there for six years. It was a wonderful experience. I mean, just wonderful because I love my home church. Uh, this church was started by one of my mentors named Lud, Lud Goltz, and, and Lud pastored there for 25 years. I was married there. I baptized my kids there. I, I, it was just a wonderful experience. I married my wife there, and now I got to be the senior pastor there. And it was a great experience. And about a year into it, everything was going great. It was a rather smaller church in a rural, rural setting. And uh, one night, I, I was working late in the office, and a couple just stopped by to, to talk to me. They were a wonderful couple in the church. I, I knew them fairly well. I'd only been there a year. But they were what I would call a key couple in the church. They weren't leaders, but they were substantive. They were well-known. They were a significant part of our church and they stopped by and I said, oh good, I kind of like them. And I invited them in my office and I said, what's up? And they said, well, we just wanted to share with you that we're leaving the church and gonna be going to, and they mentioned the church just down the road from us, about 15 minutes away. And the church they were going to was a massive mega church, the, the pastors on the radio and, and lots of people went there and he was a fantastic Bible teacher. And again, it hit me a little bit hard, but I thought, okay, don't be defensive. I, I thought I'm gonna ask him what I always ask, and that is, is there any particular reason you're leaving the church? Because as a mama bear, I wanna know who hurt you, who offended you, and I never forget, I shouldn't have asked, because they said, you. I didn't see that one coming. So again, trying not to be defensive, and I said, well, what did I say, what did I do? I don't even remember having any, any interactions with you. And, and, and this is what really hurt. They said, well, it's not anything you can really help. That's never a good thing to hear. It's not anything you can really change. And then they said, they said, it's just your teaching. You see, your teaching is not really intellectual enough for us. It's not very substantive when it comes to making us think about the word of God and our lives. And we just want something more. And so we're gonna go down the road to this popular radio preacher. Now folks, I mean, I, that, that just hurt. I, I, I was pushing 40 by that time. I'm not a young kid anymore, but I'm also still dealing with my own insecurities a lot. And, and if you could have been there and, and seen inside my brain, the neurons were going crazy. I, I mean, I, I write in my, my book that I wrote a couple of years ago that the best leaders are non-reactionary leaders. You don't lash out. You don't just speak, you know, right when somebody comes at you. You, you pull back and think about it. That's what God looks for in church leaders. And so I'm working really hard not to say what I initially thought. I'll tell you what I initially thought. What I initially thought to them was, I have an earned bachelor's degree in psychology and religion. I have an earned master's degree in divinity where I learned Hebrew and Greek, would eventually write a book on eight different Greek words. My dad is a Harvard-educated lawyer and beat into his two sons and his daughter the, the primacy of education and being intellectual and thinking. I've read Plato's Republic, have you. I've read Dante's Inferno, have you. I've read Chaucer have you, I've read Spurgeon, have you, and I'm not intellectual enough. That's what I thought when they were in front of me at that moment. <laughs> and of course, I wasn't gonna say any of that because even I said it to you, it's incredibly arrogant and defensive to say that. So I did what all pastors do at that moment. I lied and said, thank you for your feedback. <laughs> and they went on their way. 
It actually got a lot worse from there because, again, I'm not shy to admit my insecurities with you guys. Again, integrity. I, uh, I spiraled downward at that moment. I mean, I just, for the next week or two, I was in an absolute shame mode. I felt like I was back in eighth grade trying out for the basketball team. And I was four foot 10, 85 pounds, and the coach said no. I didn't even tell Kim about this. I felt so much shame. I felt so insignificant as a pastor. It was my issue. I, I just started to shame myself into, who are you kidding? You're a big fake, you can't teach. You're awful, they're right. You're, you're a pseudo-intellectual at best, even with all this education behind you. And, and I started to really spiral downward. And again, very privately churning, as one of my friends would say, behind the scenes. I've told you guys this before, but God for me, I hope he is for you, is so incredibly real. Because I do take everything to God. The Bible says in Peter, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. And so even though I didn't want to share this with Kim or any of our other pastors, I, I, I ran to God with this stuff. And God originally spoke something to my spirit that I didn't understand, but became a game changer. God said to me, as I started to whine to him about all this, he said, be open, be open. And my initial response was, be open to what, Lord? They're wrong. I, I mean, this is unfair. This is not kind. What do you want me to be open to? And God just continued to say, just be open. Because then that's what integrity is. Just, just be open, be an open book. And, and as I listened to God and got more open, God spoke something second to my spirit that became a huge game changer here. And it was hard to hear, but it became very life-giving. He said, there's some truth in what they are saying. And of course, my response is, what are you talking about, God? There's, there's no truth in what they're saying. No, Jamie, there, there's some truth in what they're saying. And as I parked in front of that, and again, just with integrity, what was more open, allowed my integrity to be my security, I realized that in part they were right. And here's why, what I realized, that unlike some pastors, I'm not just here to teach the Bible and walk away. I'm not here just to give you a biblical lesson about Greek words and leave it at that. Many pastors do that, and that's good and fine, and they're known for being outstanding Bible teachers that make you think, I listen to them and so do you. But years before this event in 2003, God had said to me, your role will be different. Yes, you will teach the Bible. Yes, you will talk about Greek words. Yes, you will explain the text, but you'll never leave it there. You will always challenge the congregation, Jamie, with your own life and with stories from others about how this applies. You will get honest, you will get real, you will get authentic with the text and never let us weasel out from applying it. And God said, the time you're doing that is the time where you're not explaining Greek words. The time you're doing that is when you're telling stories and applying this and doing what the congregation needs. It's just that not every pastor is going to do that, but you will. I can remember when I left Detroit in 1998, my senior pastor said to me after spending eight years there, I was an associate pastor and I was going into senior pastor. And he said, you do know that most churches aren't going to want you, don't you? And I said, well, that doesn't sound good. What are you talking about? He said, well, you've just learned to be too honest here. He said, we're an honest, broken community. And most churches, many churches really don't want that. They just want a nice sermon and to go on their way. You're not going to let them get away with that. And God revealed to me in 2003, that's exactly what this couple was pointing out. They wanted a nice biblical sermon that, that really didn't talk too much about what this means for us today. I get that. 
God said, Jamie, you're different. And if that means that some aren't gonna like it, if that means that some are gonna accuse you of being anti-intellectual, take it on the chin. Because in all integrity, Jamie, this is you. And you are who I called you to be. And yeah, you're gonna make mistakes, and yeah, you fall short, but allow your integrity to be your security. And folks, I've found over the years that Jesus' way here truly works. That when you and I are honest about the composition of our lives, even if you're falling short, even if there's a kernel of truth, even if they're partly right, you can still be secure before God and those around you. There's no need to be defensive. You are who you are, warts and pimples and all, fallenness, mistakes, and even sin and imperfections. Why do you think Jesus died? He died to forgive us of our sin. <laughs> it's just that others don't always follow suit, amen? Others don't always forgive us of our shortcomings like Jesus does. But what integrity does is integrity says, I'm okay nonetheless. Integrity says that I'm secure in him and I can open myself up to others even if they're not going to like it. And we don't make excuses. You know, sometimes when you open yourself up to others in integrity, you're gonna realize that maybe you're more wrong than you thought. And that's okay too. Integrity just simply says nothing in secret. Open it up. And if you find they're being unfairly judgmental, which many people are, you're gonna be okay because your integrity is your security. It worked for Jesus, it can work for us. Now, we got about 15 minutes left, so a bit more quickly, but equally important. There's a second key way as we follow the text here, because I'm very intellectual. As we follow the text here, I want you to notice uh, the second thing that Jesus did when he was judged and found wanting by his fellow Jewish leaders. And, and again, I'm going to warn you, this one has teeth. And that is that he says, allow truth to be your defense. So first thing is, you allow integrity to be your security. Don't ever forget that. But then you allow truth to be your defense. What's the difference? Look at what happens next in this scene, because Jesus shows us this. It says, when he, Jesus, had said this, again, that I've spoken openly and nothing in secret, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus. Can you imagine striking the Son of God? Saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, then why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, what you simply need to notice, 30 seconds, is that obviously the action's heating up here, right? I mean, initially he was being judged unfairly for his claim to be the son of God. Now he's being judged for his answer to the claim to being the son of God. And he's even being struck. So they're heaping judgment upon judgment and it's all grossly unfair. So what's the way Jesus responds to this increased judgment? He says, if I've spoken wrongly. That word wrong, <laughs> looked up in the Greek, you're gonna love this, means wrong. And that word means something not right, something inaccurate, something not truthful. And then that word right means right. It actually means correct to a standard. So you have a standard, which in this case is God's standard, his truth, that's what Jesus is appealing to. He says, but if I've spoken rightly, correctly to the standard of who God is and what is really right and true, then why are you so angry with me? 
Notice that this is Jesus' defense here. His defense is falling back on truth. Integrity is personal truth, the truth of who I am. What Jesus is doing here has to do with what we call transcendent truth, truth that comes from on high, truth that is out there to be discovered in the Bible of who God is. And Jesus is saying, man, if anything I've ever said doesn't collate with the truth of who God is, then tell me, let's spar over that. But if it's rightly, then back off and don't get so angry with me. Don't miss this, folks. Jesus is allowing truth to be his defense. And obviously the point is, when judged by your own, so should we. In a very real way, what Jesus is showing us here, and you're gonna love this. (laughs) I know I've said that a few times today, but this just jazzed me this week, is that Jesus is saying, when you're judged, open up your Bible and match what they say about you against this book. So you don't just match it, Pierre, against your integrity, which I know you have, brother. You also open up this book and you match it against what God says. And folks, again, I've been doing this for almost 40 years now. I cannot tell you how many times this has helped take the edge off the unfair judgment (laughs) that comes my way often, even as a pastor. So if I say something from the pulpit and somebody comes back at me, which Christians are known to do, I just open this book and I say, are they right or are they wrong? Jamie, deal with the judgment in light of that. When they make a judgment about a decision that I make for the church, again, I, I open up this book and I talk with my elders. I, do they have a point? Is, is there something that we're not seeing here, guys? There's a harsh judgment coming our way, but, but what does this book say about our ecclesiology, which is a fancy word for the church? It's an intellectual word for the church and, 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 and what the church is and all of that. And, 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 and I match it up against this book. Or how about this one? You ever had a Christian judge you about gray areas? In other words, areas that are not wrong, but aren't necessarily right, in which the Bible says that you have an individual conscience that you need to have clean before God. You know, when Christians judge me that way, again, I, I, I can't tell you many times I've read Corinthians and Romans when it talks about the gray areas, eating meat sacrificed to idols, and I just say, God, am I doing all right? Am I, am I okay? And many times, God confirms in my spirit that you're doing okay. How about parenting? You ever known a Christian to judge another Christian about their parenting, yes or no? Happens all the time. You think they ever judge pastors on pastors' kids? All the time. And so over the years, I've gone to God's word and said, God, am I doing right? Am I doing Ephesians 6? Am I doing 1 Timothy 3? Am I doing the things that you've asked me to do to parent my own kids who who are far from perfect? In other words, whenever judgment is passed on me, I match it up against the truth. Just like Jesus, I say, well, if I've done or spoken wrongly, then show me where. If I've done so rightly, then back off. (laughs) And don't get so angry with me, because I think it's more about you than it is about me. It's a good defense, this idea of truth. So what we're seeing here today is that when judged by your own and found wanting, which happens, Jesus shows us to allow integrity to be your security, to allow truth to be your defense. And then I've saved the best for last. We've got about nine minutes left. Most powerfully, and this is what really works, is to allow God to be your shelter. Allow integrity to be your security, truth to be your defense, but allow God to be your shelter. Why is this important? Here's what I found over the years. As I have been applying Jesus's first two things here to allow integrity to be my security and truth to be my defense, 
There are lots of times where I win on that, meaning that it takes the edge off the judgment, but here's what happens. It still hurts. You ever found that? In other words, I can be as right as the rain, but it still hurts and it's still rather lonely because they don't see it. They don't change. They didn't with Jesus. I mean, they didn't say, oh, Jesus, Jesus, we're so sorry. We judged you harshly. Let us repent. They didn't do that. And many times it doesn't happen that way in the church. So what do we do then? What Jesus is going to show us right now is that you run to God and allow him to be your covering, allow him to be your shelter when you're most lonely, when you're most hurting, when you feel most judged. You're saying, where's that in this text? I glossed over one verse earlier, verse 14, that almost seemingly comes out of nowhere. It's a, it seems like it's just an editorial note by John that actually is more than what it seems. Look up here again. In John 18, 14, as Jesus is introducing Annas and, and Caiaphas, these two Jewish leaders who are judging Jesus, he makes this comment in verse 14. He says, now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Now, most Christians have no idea what's being referenced there, let alone why would John include that in here? In fact, I love to do this with the Bible because I'm intellectual. And, uh, and what I love to do with the Bible, I'm just joking. What I love to do with the Bible is I sometimes take verses out to see if it reads the same. And when you take verse 14 out and go from verse 13 to verse 15, it actually reads just fine. So you have to ask yourself, why did John feel the need to remind us of who Caiaphas is, whom he already introduced back in chapter 11, and, and tell us that what he already said back in chapter 11, this idea that Caiaphas said it's expedient for one man to die for the people. Here's why. When you go back and read chapter 11, specifically verses 67 through the end of the chapter, what you're going to read is this that there's a time when the Jews were coming strongly after Jesus because he was claiming to be the son of God, the Messiah, and they wanted to stone him, to kill him. And so the Sanhedrin, all these Jewish leaders met and were arguing about whether or not they should kill Jesus now. And Caiaphas weighed in on it and said, well, it's expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. In other words, Caiaphas was essentially saying, let's kill him. <laughs> John then makes an editorial note at that point and says, you're going to love this, what Caiaphas didn't realize is that he was actually prophesying what God's plan was all along for Jesus' death. And then John adds, Jesus' death on behalf of all of his people and the whole world. In other words, John is telling us that when Caiaphas made that statement, unbeknownst to him, it was actually a prophecy of what was going to happen to Jesus, all a part of God's plan. So could it be, now going back to verse 14 here, that the reason John inserts this once again here is that he's saying Jesus knew who this Caiaphas was. Jesus knew what Caiaphas said. Jesus knew it was a prophecy. And most importantly, Jesus knew it was all part of God's plan. And that Jesus even rested in the fact that all the bad stuff happening to him, even this judgment was a part of God's plan. And the answer is yes, because Matthew would record that when Jesus was in the garden, he knew what was coming. He's God in the flesh for crying out loud. And he prayed, Lord, please take this cup from me. And what did, God, or what did Jesus say next? But not my will, but your will be done. 
So Jesus knew God's plan and he knew that he needed the Father's covering, the Father's shelter in order to go to that cross. And what he's showing you and I here is that when we feel unfairly judged, do you ever think like this? Maybe recognize God has got this. Maybe recognize he's your covering, he's your shelter. And though man judges you, God is with you. See, this is a challenge to me. It sounds so simple, but I'm telling you, 18 years ago, when this couple was in there judging me so unfairly, I did not think to myself, well, it's all part of God's plan. God kind of knew they'd be here that night and he knew they'd say that. So, hey, water off a duck's back. I'm just gonna sort of let this one roll. I wasn't thinking that way. No, I was thinking of defending myself and coming back at them. And then when I backed off, I shamed, uh, spiraled into shame and, and I had to go through the integrity thing and all that stuff. And, and what would have happened if I had just said, God's got this. He's my shelter. He's the one who knew this was coming, just like with Jesus. And though it's no fun and though you feel judged and though you might feel alone, he's with you. He's with you. I want to wrap up with a, a, one more true story that has become very, very meaningful to me. I almost don't want to share this with you because it's so personal to me, and you'll see why. It's my little secret to how, how I live life today, but I think it, it is worth sharing. Uh, one of the things that is a symptom of when I'm feeling unfairly judged and, and dealing with stress at work is, is, like you guys, my sleep patterns. So I, I usually sleep pretty well. But there are times when, if I'm feeling un unduly burdened and stressed by things here at church, I, I don't sleep well. And, and I stir, and I can't get to bed, and, and some nights I even am up all night if there's something really weighing on me. And usually what's weighing on me is, is you know, dissonance in the church and, and, and people disagreeing with me and the elders and, and the stress that comes with all of that. We've been through changes in our church here, and there have been, quite frankly, too many sleepless nights. Years ago... <laughs> I, I discovered, tucked away in the Psalms, that King David uh, struggled with the same thing. That, that King David would have many sleepless nights, that he would be bothered a lot by the machinations going on in Israel and, and him being the king. In Ch Psalm chapter four, it's a very short Psalm, it's only eight verses, uh, David is actually kind of outlining some of the stress he's going through. He says in verse two, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach to you? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? So, so people are coming at him. They're judging him unfairly. They're finding him wanting and he's wrestling with that. And then he goes on to talk about how he believes in God and God is his strength and all of that. And, and, and then he revisits this idea of, again, people coming back at him. He says in verse six, many are saying, who will show us any good? But then he says, hey, God is good and we need to look to him. And then here's what I discovered. This is probably about 15, 20 years ago. That David then ends this short psalm with a prayer, with a statement that he believes that's gonna help him sleep that night. And it's such a powerful statement that I have, now watch this, I memorized it 15 or 20 years ago. It's not hard to memorize and I, and I use it as my prayer every night before bed. This is my closing prayer. This is what's so personal to me. That, that whether I'm stressed out or not, before I take any Ambien or something silly like that, this is my prayer. And, and it goes like this. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Wow. In peace. I will both lie down in my bed and sleep for you alone, O oh Lord, 
make me to dwell in safety. This is such a powerful prayer to me. I, I pray this every single night. It's the last thing that I say and think before my head hits the pillow. Because I believe that this is a, a promise that we can claim from God. That when David was so stressed out by those coming at him, and you gotta read the life of David sometime in Chronicles and Kings. I mean, they're just coming at him from left and right in Samuel. They're just coming at him. And he says in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. I'm putting this stuff aside. I'm finding my shelter in God. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And I'll show you something even more powerful with this. There was about a time where maybe a few years ago where, again, I say this every night before I go to bed, and it really does help me sleep. I'm telling you, it's better than any sleep aid. It helps me fall asleep. But there were times where, where I, I don't know if I really believed this, like there's still too many sleepless nights. And so I actually altered the prayer, and, and God convicted me of it. You're saying, how'd you alter? Well, instead of using the word will, I would say as I go to bed, kind of weak and tired, I'd say, well, Lord, uh, in peace, I, I, I hope to lie down and, and sleep tonight, Lord, and, and, and I hope you make me dwell in safety. I literally, or may I, I'd say may I, Lord, in, in peace, may I lie down and sleep tonight and, and, and may you make me dwell in safety. And I felt so smug and righteous about that. And God convicted my spirit. Again, I, I love God so much because he said to me, you may, you may. That's not the word David used, Jamie. He used the word will. He claimed it by faith. It's a promise. I'm with you. I'm your shelter. Read the prayer directly, Jamie. And ever since then, I have. That's why I memorized it. In peace, Lord, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's my last thought before my head hits the pillar. It's not magic, but boy, does it work, at least for me. It, it, it nestles me in God. And then very quickly, typical Bible, three verses later, now Psalm 5, two verses into it, David gives his morning prayer. And I use this one every morning. David says in Psalm 5, 3, in the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Order doesn't mean order God, it means order up. The King James says, I will lift up my prayer to you and, and eagerly watch. And boy, I love that too. Because after a night of sleep, whether it's restless or not, when I get up in the morning, even before I greet Kim, because she's usually asleep still, I'll greet God. Why? Because the psalmist tells me to make sure that he's the one who hears my voice in the morning. So I end my day with God. I begin my day with God. And again, for me, it allows me to find my shelter in him, even amidst the loneliness that you go through when relationships fall apart. Your integrity is your security. His truth is your defense. But mostly, himself, God, is your shelter. Why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wonderful truths, the life-giving truths that Jesus came to show us and I thank you, God, that even when, when Jesus' relationships fell apart, whether with Judas or with, with, with Peter or here with the Jewish leaders or next week with Pilate, the Roman leaders, God, you have a, things to teach us that he shows us. And Father, I thank you for words like integrity and truth and God. And that, Lord, in those things we can find our peace. We can find even help when we feel so beat up even by friendly fire. And so, God, I pray for the, the one here today who might really be in the ringer right now. They're just going through that tunnel of chaos right now. I pray, God, that you would be with them in a special way 
and that these things, this pattern that Jesus shows us, would be both meaningful and applicable to their lives, and that, Lord, they too might lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make us dwell in safety. Amen.